Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, Jim. Great to talk again for the latest edition of The Other Hand. We're going to try and move away from contemporaneous day-to-day events for this particular podcast. There's just too much going on, and we've, we've covered it a lot recently. So we're going to try and do something slightly different. Three topics for discussion today. The first is essentially stemming from a survey, a PW survey that was reported in the press earlier this week about artificial intelligence, various aspects of it. And I know that one particular feature of that survey uh, piqued your interest, which is the threat that AI poses for cybersecurity, for business in particular, and I guess for all of us in general. The second thing that we want to talk about today is the appropriate government response to things like flooding, natural disasters, in a more general discussion of what governments can and can't do, what governments should and shouldn't do, what governments are able to do, and what should be beyond their remit. And we've both got lots of similar, different thoughts on that. And I'm going to invite you to open that discussion in a moment. If we've got time, because I suspect both those things might take up all of the allotted time in the podcast, one of the things that both of us uh, are involved with in our professional lives as well as uh, just taking an interest, is ESG investing. Environmental social governance is what those three letters in that acronym stand for. It's something that's been around for a very long time. When I actually managed money back in the last, uh, shall we say, century, it used to be called ethical money. And I have watched and been interested in and involved in the progression from ethical investing through to ESG investing, as it is called these days. I presume ESG still aims to be ethical amongst its other objectives. And the issues that this is causing for the investing world, for people who manage money, for whose money it is, and indeed whether or not it's going to work in terms of its stated objectives. 
So, Jim, there's three topics for today. As I say, we might only cover two of them. But I know that these survey on AI, aspects of AI, particularly caught your attention earlier this week. Do you want to kick off there? Yeah, I do, Chris. The one thing I really love about having our own podcast is we can talk about whatever we want to talk about. And that's why it's good to get away from the day to day to sort of focus in on more strategic stuff. And my interest was piqued early in the week by a PwC survey about cybersecurity. And 53% of respondents in this business leader survey, and I stress business leader survey, um, they expect AI to lead to catastrophic cyber attacks in the next 12 months. And that 53% in Ireland compares to the global response of 52%. There is an overwhelming fear amongst leaders that advanced business email compromises of scale will increasingly happen. And they're scared about it. There's this sort of view that really this thing is out of control um, while AI does produce major opportunities and positives. There's a massive downside to that. And we, we've had, we haven't had a discussion on AI actually for a while now, but you know we had Noah Smith on at one stage talking about it. And he is definitely very, very positively disposed towards the trend. But then there are others. I mentioned this book in another context last week, but Mustafa Suleiman's book called The Coming Wave goes through all of the aspects of AI and where it can impact positively, negatively. And he talks about the absolute priority is to have containment of these technologies. But he really has no idea how you can actually uh, deliver that sort of containment, given that AI and technology generally is now developing so quickly, it is totally outpacing the ability of regulators to stay on top of this. It's in that context, I just found the PwC thing really interesting. And, and it does just show you there is a huge amount of fear and uncertainty out there about it. In areas like healthcare, in areas like climate change, uh, clearly in the healthcare arena, I guess, in predicting and treating diseases, AI can have, and machine learning can have a huge role to play. But uh, there are huge potential downsides with, you know, the threats to the nation state, with the interference in elections, um, with the ability to actually get in and compromise national airlines, health services. Uh, the list is endless. So it strikes me, Chris, and you know me, um, technology kind of bores me. I have as much technological knowledge as I need to have to operate, but it's not something unlike you that I could go away and spend hours and hours delving into. If I had that sort of time to spare, I'd prefer reading history, for example, or indeed politics or indeed economics, which I, I guess I should. I just get the sense at the moment that there is an overwhelming fear out there and this sense of we really are not in control of this situation. I think that's right. I think that people who worry about control are right to be worried because it's clearly all over the place. Nobody is in charge. I'm, I wonder whether anybody could be in charge. We could ask the question, should somebody be in charge? I think it's an academic moot question because of the disparate nature of AI. AI is not one single thing. A lot of people would think today that it's essentially these chatbots that we can use for free uh, that are extraordinary 
assistance for people like me in terms of the work that I do. I have to use it with great care. My own personal experience with these things is that I was incredibly a wide-eyed optimist when they first emerged. I use them for a lot of different things these days, but very carefully. I don't presume that they are right because one of the key problems with these large language models is that for the moment, at least, they get a lot of things wrong. I got an email yesterday from an economics professor, Brad DeLong in the States, very well-known economic historian, actually, wondering why these chatbots get algebra so wrong, for example. And there are all these different uh, issues with it. So the early promise is not being fulfilled, but I suspect it will be. I think these are teething problems. The bigger issues, the bigger problems, the bigger questions that these things can address, I think, are all there potentially. Uh, Great advances in medicine, great advances in all sorts of different things have already been made. Uh, Things like protein folds and other uh, things that it's not the chatbots that do those. It's other forms of artificial intelligence, other forms of machine learning. One, there are going to be lots of unintended con- and unknowable consequences of this. Do you remember how long ago it was before everybody was thinking that their children should be encouraged to be computer programmers, Jim? Coders. Do you remember that? I certainly do. Yeah. And I think this was before all this kicked off. I remember I, we might have even discussed it on this podcast. I wondered about the wisdom of encouraging our children here to become coders when there are already a billion coders in Asia uh, doing a fantastic job of uh, software development. And this skill clearly exists. It exists in other parts of the world. Shouldn't we be doing something different was a question I asked. Um, What I didn't ask was whether or not coders would be necessary in the future. It didn't occur to me that they would go the way of the horse. You might remember back in the day, Jim, that there were more horses in the UK and Ireland than there were people. And then the motor car came along and all of a sudden horses were not needed for all of the tasks that that they were. One of the things that artificial intelligence is very good at, I am told, it's a long time since I did computer programming in anger, but I have done a bit in my time, can still do a little bit now. It can produce code. It can't produce perfect code. It still needs checking, and all of those errors that I referred to earlier on appear to be a problem for it. But if you want to get yourself into a position where you can be a programmer very quickly, a thousand times more quickly than in the past, these things will write code for you, at least give you a starting point from which to to build. So the future of computer programming as a skill for paid employment is open to question. And there are just a thousand other questions like that. Cybersecurity is another one. How can I be sure, Jim, that I'm actually speaking to you right now? Exactly, Chris. Yeah. I'm um, not sure. Yeah. I'm looking at you here on the screen, uh, wondering. I think it is you. I think it's you. I think it's you. I don't think we've got an AI system that can do that Waterford accent accent just yet. Have you seen the Sky News, uh, not the Sky News, the Sky TV series called Cobra? No. It's about a British, the Cobra is the the security apparatus Mm. here in the UK. It's entirely fictional. But the second series of Cobra, which is wildly popular here in the UK, um, possibly because it's so British, it may not be popular outside these 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 borders. But um, in this context, it is interesting. The entire second series, not just one episode, is all about a Russian, Chinese, and possibly American cyber attack on the UK's infrastructure, both its nuclear power plants, its water plants, its roads. All of the speed limits in the UK are reduced on motorways to 30 miles an hour. Accidents are caused, red lights turn green and vice versa when they shouldn't. 
it's extraordinary in terms of its imagination. And I guess it's that kind of thing that those survey respondents were thinking about. Because if you think that nowadays cyber problems are caused by phishing emails, by people, very skilled people phoning you up to try and get you to give them their bank details. Uh, Here in the UK, there was just over the weekend publicity around a small business, a very successful long-standing business that the finance director was conned out of opening up the business's bank account to fraudsters over the phone because they were so plausible, they were so well rehearsed, they were so polite. And a seven-figure sum in 20 minutes disappeared from this firm's bank accounts. Now, I can understand when you hear stuff like that from this is not artificial intelligence being deployed, it's actual intelligence, human intelligence. But if you were to combine that with AI, my God, I can understand why you would be worried. The point is, I think, that nobody is actually going to set up a set of rules and regulations for these for for all of this it's going just it's it's a wild west development issue and even if we started to regulate here in this part of the world do you think russia china and north korea are going to participate in our rulemaking no absolutely not and i think that's that is the real terror inherent in all of this i mean if if you are on the board of a company driving the risk register um, cybersecurity clearly will have to play a prominent role there. You know, in a risk register, you identify the probability of something happening. You try and measure the impact if something were to happen. And you then come up with mitigating measures for the highest risks. So how do you mitigate against cybersecurity at this stage? Well, One you have to. Pardon? You have to, and, yes. and the, the the law and common sense means. But it, it involves spending loads of money. It's a big cost for business. It, it's you know, if you're uh, a small business, it's going to be a big part of your fixed costs now, and and that's a problem. The companies that uh, I know firsthand, I have firsthand knowledge of companies that get thousands, thousands of phishing attacks every day. The the, the attacks on their system, uh, phishing emails attempts to penetrate their, their websites. Um, anybody that has access, for example, to, well, anybody that has a decent sum of money in the bank account, whether the firm has got its own money or is managing other people's money, is subject to the most astonishing and frightening array, both in terms of quantity and increasingly quality. This is the AI point of, of cyber attacks. And the, the, it's a race that is never ending it's 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 not a race that you want we are ever going to finish because you, the uh, other side is always innovating and you just have to put up more and more defenses anybody that works in a financial services firm uh, that's the area that i know best has to undergo several times a year mandatory training in this stuff and how to resist financial cyber attacks of, of various kinds and at the moment the attacks are pretty crude but they are getting more and more sophisticated and it's just something we got to do everybody has to spend loads of money and devote lots of resources there are now people whose full-time job is dealing with all of this nonsense serious nonsense it's going to get bigger it's going to get worse and it's going to become a bigger cost and part of the cost of doing business i suspect is that we're just going to accept that we're going to have losses somewhere in the system and it's just it's just a question of, of running as hard as you can to stand still Absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 scary stuff, but it's something we have to face up to. 
The other factor, I guess, that has to feature on risk register now is weather events and the impact on a business. Uh, We've had some incredible flooding in Ireland over the last number of weeks. And I know, likewise, in the UK, same sort of flooding issues. Businesses have been absolutely destroyed. And um, that the most recent one of note here was in Middleton County, Cork, last week when there was phenomenal flooding, did serious damage to businesses. And I've I've seen a number of business owners in that town and elsewhere indeed being interviewed about the damage that was done, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm I'm not passing a judgment on this. I'm just raising it as an issue. Um, There is this acceptance now that the government, an expectation indeed that the government will have to step in and provide significant financial compensation to the businesses that are affected. And you see this in more and more aspects of life. And indeed, the budget that was presented on the 10th of October, just gone, uh, contained a lot of measures actually that were basically representing government intervention financially to help people and businesses who are adversely affected by events. Um, I think in the last three years, the whole narrative around government intervention has flipped dramatically because of covid because when COVID hit back in March 2020, many governments around the world stepped in, providing very strong financial support through tax changes, through expenditure measures to help businesses and households get through this nature-driven crisis. I, I, I definitely think that has changed the narrative about the role of government. It has built an expectation. And of course, populist polit- politics plays into this as well. Because if you look at the parties in opposition in this country, and they are all on the left, Sinn Féin, People Before Profit, uh, the Social Democrats, the Labour Party, uh, they are basically racing to give more and more funding to people, uh, to households, businesses, etc. And of course, government is responding because um, it has been clear to me for some time now that economic policy in this country has effectively been run by the opposition rather than by the parties in government. That is the reality of the situation now. And I, I'm, I'm not sort of passing a value judgment on it. I'm just stating it as a fact of life at the moment. And I, I guess where the value judgment would come in from my perspective would be, where does this end? You know, at what stage is the government not expected to intervene and provide financial support? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is the ancient debate amongst economists, Jim, is the extent to which, if you are in a mixed economy, how mixed do you want it to be? To paraphrase Orwell, how how equal are some rather than others? 
and it's a debate that's ebbed and flowed in economics for a long period of time and seeped into the political domain. Here in the UK, under Margaret Thatcher and under Ronald Reagan at the same time-ish in the United States, it was deemed that the government had done enough. Uh, Ronald Reagan is famous for saying that the worst words in the English language are, I'm here from the government to help you, what can I do for you? And they rolled back the state and they believed that the market was the way in which things should be organized, the market should be paramount, and we got all of that monetarist market-led economics it's certainly in terms of rhetoric. You could argue about how much they actually did, but they certainly did did some. And that, But they didn't move to a completely unfettered Hayekian, named after Friedrich von Hayek, the doyen of, of market-based economists. They didn't move entirely in that direction. Uh, but they did take the, their economies significantly down that path. And a lot of people argue that going down that path has led to a lot of the problems that gave rise ultimately to Donald Trump and Brexit and all that, all that good stuff. I would argue, Jim, that happened less in Ireland than it did in the UK and the US historically, in that you, know, you, you have the greatest social welfare transfer system in the Western world. In the world. You, you go from quite high levels of what we call market inequality, that's before the tax and welfare system gets to work, to produce the outcome of a Scandinavian-style equal economy. You never really embraced market fundamentalism in the way that the UK and the US did for a while. And the debate is essentially, or at least historically, about left and right. And you can you can encapsulate it in terms of the decision to work or not work, whether or not you can work and whether or not there is enough there are enough jobs in the economy, all the debate. On the left, anybody's unemployed, it's not their fault, it's the system's fault that is unable to generate work for the uh, person concerned and that therefore the welfare system should provide everything for as long as necessary for that person. On the right, it's always lazy worker. I'm paraphrasing, exaggerated to make a point. On the right, it's always the lazy worker's problem. They're just welfare cheats, welfare bums, and that therefore the social welfare system should only do a very minimal amount to ease people through short periods of transition and then you're on your own in the market economy. And that debate has ebbed and flowed as well at both the micro and the macro level. One thing all economists agree on is that you need to design your welfare policies very, very carefully and that you don't want to end up in a situation that you have, for example, in the more deprived parts of the UK. You now have the third generation of unemployed person living in the same house because they, because th these things are habit-forming. They create disincentives rather than incentives to work and the design of the system just causes it to go awry. And that it's no, no, it's nobody's fault who's claiming the benefits. There's, we're not talking about lazy bum welfare bums here. It's just system design fault is what we can all agree on, and and creation distortion of incentives and all that kind of stuff. But you, at the end of the day, you do want to create welfare dependency. You do want to create a cohort of people who are dependent on welfare, and you can see that working actually at a much bigger macro level. If you take the Welsh economy, and I would argue to a certain extent, to a considerable extent, actually, the Scottish and the Northern Irish economies, they're welfare dependent. And they're dependent on welfare from the English, mostly London, taxpayer for their revenues because they, they effectively receive huge subsidies from that English taxpayer. And you can see it. You talked about people always saying, we want the government to do more when our 
business is flooded and whatever. And that's a very natural, understandable human reaction. But you can actually see it at the government level in Wales, for example. If you see any politician being criticised rightly for their lousy education policies or education outcomes, certainly, and health outcomes, the health service in Wales is in much worse shape than in, the, in England and a whole host of other measures, one of the great attack lines that I would urge Rishi Sunak to use for next the upcoming general election is that if you want to turn England into Wales, just vote Labour, because Labour has been the party of government since devolution. Wales is a one-party state. And every answer to every problem is, the London government should give us more money. So it's kind of national welfare dependency. And you, this is a very long-winded answer to your question about how much is enough. Um, I would argue that if you so obviously have got distorted incentives in the case of Wales, Welsh people should say to their government, give us an economy that actually pays for itself. Stop whining about never getting enough money from the English taxpayer. And the English taxpayer should actually say enough. You know, we've given you so much money over so many years. We've created a problem rather than solving one. So I'm afraid the question, the long-winded answer to your question is I'm not au fait enough with the with the people who have been sadly affected by these floods. But it can't be the case that government is there to solve every single problem. Uh, that was tried um, in the Soviet Union and in many other countries. It's currently being tried in North Korea. And I'm not sure in human history if it's ever been successfully done. Um, but the line does need to be drawn somewhere. I'll throw the question back to you, Jim. Where would you draw it? I'm conflicted by all of this, Chris, because I, I look at the business owners, the problems they have endured and indeed householders from climate events. And you could say in the case of a town like Middleton, where the local authority has failed to put a flood relief system in place. And so as a consequence of that, the state is responsible. Um, but on the other hand, I, I really pardon the pun. I really I'm not au fait with what the planning situation is down there, because I do know um, the failure to deliver flood defence in many towns around the country has been driven by objections and you know planning issues. We had this whole debate here in Dublin some years back about lifting the height of the wall on the Clontarf seafront, and the residents won the day, and the, the wall was um, taken down a little bit. Uh, to give the residents the view over the sea. But I wonder in 20 years' time, if not much sooner indeed, when floodwaters are coming over that wall, will issues like that be revisited? It is also the case that in some towns last week, where since serious flooding did occur, um, culverts were blocked up by people dumping rubbish, beds and mattresses and all sorts of stuff, blocked culverts and exacerbated what was an already very, very difficult situation with incredible amounts of rain falling out of the sky. So there's just so many issues to this. But I, I, th I think at the end of the day that there is a limit to how much the state can intervene. Uh, but in, in theory, at least there is a limit. But in practice, I don't think there's any limit. I just limit, excuse me. I just think this is going to go on and on. And I think politics will drive that process. It's very important to have that discussion about where we draw the line, though, Jim, as I know you, you acknowledge there, because there's an absolute constraint in terms of the amount of money that's available. And that, that is what it is. And we can argue about what that amount is. But what that mean, 
means is that you'll decide we've got this amount of money that the public sector can spend because this is the amount of tax revenues the economy generates. And then you can have the left-right debate about the right saying, well, that's too much tax revenue, and the left saying it's too little. And that debate will go on forever. But assume just for a second the economy is producing the optimum equilibrium amount of taxes. What we don't do is explain that every single decision about every single penny that is spent from those tax revenues will involve a trade-off. What you spend it on means that there'll be something else, a whole range of things that you don't spend it on that you can't because it's called a budget constraint. It's not an infinite amount of money. And I think we've moved so far away from understanding that basic accounting principle that inevitably, as we have done so many times in the past, we are going to get ourselves into fiscal trouble. And that's just a fiscal arithmetic point about you can't spend money that you don't have. And what you can spend it on involves trade-offs, which we never talk about, which are never explained, which are taboo subjects in politics now everywhere, not just in Ireland, but including here, especially here in the UK. But there's also the, I don't know whether it's ethical, moral, or in principle uh, discussion which, of course, we never have these days, is what is appropriate for government intervention and what isn't. It's hard, it's tough, and because it's hard and tough, we now duck it as a, as a, as a discussion point. We don't even go there because it's just so politically toxic. But the other hand has gone there, if only briefly. Isn't that right, Jim? Yeah, that's correct, Chris. Um, something that's sort of related to what we've been discussing in some ways is um, the whole question of sustainability and particularly sustainability in financial markets. C.S. Lewis once says that you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. Um, and that feeds into the whole issue about addressing climate change, even at this late juncture. Um, one of the definitions of sustainability is meet, excuse me, meeting the needs of the present generation without compromising the needs of generations to come and this sustainability mantra has really started to dominate financial markets and financial investment decisions and the whole sustainability agenda is now on top of the investment league table in terms of being a strategy and i know you've had plenty of experience of this i've had plenty of experience of it do you think this whole sustainable investing thing is a fad or is it something that's with us? Oh, I think it's definitely something that with it, is with us. It's been around for a lot longer than people realise. It, it used to be called ethical investing back in the day and was driven uh, in large part, actually, by charity and religious organisations, how they invested their money. And so there were lots of things about not investing in arms, for example. Uh, that would have been quite a common criteria exclusion criteria for investing and back in the day it was relatively simple there were there were relatively straightforward exclusion criteria like that that you couldn't invest the money of your client in the, these kinds of things it's much more complicated now because back in those days it was quite voluntary these days the regulator has stepped in and that means if if it doesn't mean anything else that it's here to stay once the regulator has stepped in and uh, the, the regulations are evolving and they are causing the industry to have to get up to speed. And there are many different aspects of this, but uh, different regulators in different jurisdictions are doing different things, which causes problems for global investors. Uh, there's the question, there are so many questions and we haven't got time to go into them all. Does ESG investing, as it's called, environmental, social and governance investing, do these new rules 
make any sense? Will they actually help the environment? What do they mean for your investments? Will they enhance your investment returns? Will they detract from your investment returns? Uh, and fund managers have to obey these rules. And those rules are here to stay. It's causing them to have to spend money on extra compliance, extra paperwork, and all these other things. It just has to be done. There's no question about that. One of the problems that fund managers have is actually getting their clients to engage in the rules, the people whose money it is. So there are all sorts of different issues with this. But yes, it's here to stay. It'll get better because it's so early on, I think, in the regulatory process. It is a, a, a bit of a hodgepodge. But I think things will become clearer, demarcation lines will become firmer, and what we actually have to do will, be, will become clearer. It's a bit of a dog's breakfast at the moment, Jim, I must say. Yeah, it, it, it strikes me certainly that it is because um, there, there's obviously the overriding national environmental imperative, um, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, um, the climate, uh, the, sorry, the Paris Climate Agreement, um, and then every country has its own targets in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, electrification of the fleet, all of that stuff. So there's, there is a very strong national framework guiding all of this. But in, in the role of investing and in investment markets, it strikes me that regulation is just proceeding at a very rapid pace at the moment and that fund managers are now being made responsible for getting their clients interested in sustainable investment. How does that work? Or is that correct? Correct. I, I'm not sure whether that's the right way to think about this. Um, certainly fund managers around the world have, have to do this now because regulators are telling them to do it. Some of their clients are demanding it as well. As I say, one of the interesting things is the extent to which clients aren't asking for this, which some will be disappointed by, some will understand. Uh, I think the issue will be the extent, the, the, the proof of the pudding here is the extent to which this helps achieve the goals. As you say, um, will it achieve the environmental, social and governance goals that, that, that these exercises seek to achieve? I, do, I don't know. I mean, there are plenty of people out there who doubt it, who see it just as a box ticking exercise. There are plenty of people who, who are evangelical about this, who think that it is so obviously necessary, not least for the environment, that at least we've got to try. I don't think anybody knows how successful these policies will be, but you can see them. It's not just the regulatory policies. It's the pressure that student bodies are putting on their universities to divest from fossil fuels that go much further than the regulations say. Uh, so it's down as much to individual decisions as it is to people meeting the actual rules. So what the consequences of all this are going to be, I don't know. I don't know whether it'll work. What I do know, it, it has changed massively the face of investing. I had occasion recently to give a finance economics lecture at Trinity College Dublin, actually, as, as part of one of their programs. I was a guest lecturer, and I know that you also give many more lectures than me to another MBA program elsewhere. And uh, one of the things that I did for this lecture was just out of curiosity, uh, Google, uh, I might have even used AI to do this, to search for the most popular, the most cited finance theory journal articles of the last 10, 20, 25 years to see what kind of things, since I last read these journals, are really exercising people. And I was expecting to see the usual stuff about the equity risk premium, about asset allocation decisions, about new algorithms for spotting cheap companies, all the things that you normally see in finance journals. 
where the farmer French three-factor model should now be the farmer French 148-factor model. Those are the sorts of headlines that I was expecting. And to a certain extent, there were one or two of those, but only one or two, because the top 10 lists that these search exercises threw up, guess what they all were about? ESG. ESG, yeah. Yeah, it's clearly dominating certainly a big section of the investment industry, for good or ill. Let's hope it's for good. Yeah, and I mean, uh, at an investment fund level, um, Larry Fink in BlackRock, you know, has been a proponent of this, and he has written letters for a number of years now to company CEOs, basically telling them what he expects or how he expects their companies to behave if he's going to invest in their companies. And ESG since 2014 has just become an increasingly dominant part of those letters. So certainly being driven at that level. But at the end of the day, I think the real challenge will come um, when consumers have to pay more for goods that are more sustainable. Um, Investors may, not necessarily, but in the current climate, certainly may have to accept investment returns that are significantly lower than if you were investing in fossil fuel companies at the moment, for example. And that's where the real test comes, isn't it? If it starts to cost people in their pockets, will this love affair with ESG actually prevail? And I don't have any global industry numbers to back up this or not one way or the other. But from people that I speak to in the industry, there is a sense that when you actually ask people whose money it is that fund managers are managing, do you want us to do these things? Do you want us to be very ESG compliant? They, they first of all say, yeah, sure. You know, we're nice people. We, we're concerned about the environment. We want our world to be better governed. And then you point out to them that it may or may not enhance returns. And we, there is some evidence to say that it does. And there's some evidence to say that it doesn't. If the moment they start focusing on the fact that they might actually not make as much money as they would otherwise have done, it does focus the mind. And you, you, you be, might be surprised by how quickly people lose interest in it, which is a shame, because I think that the overriding theme of all of this is that whoever is desi- designing these rules, their heart is clearly in the right place. If we weren't at least trying to do something about the environment, the E part of ESG, then I think that would be criminally irresponsible. So I, I think that, yes, we should be doing this. We should be trying at least. And whether or not it has been designed in the right way to achieve the right results, I don't think anybody knows. All we've got is hope. Yeah. Listen, Chris, uh, fascinating discussion, at least from my perspective. Uh, I hope our listeners share that. It's, it is something that we will return to because ESG is just becoming more and more uh, pertinent in our, all of our lives. So listen, great to talk again. Uh, look forward to getting back with you next week. Bye. Speak to you soon. Cheers, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.